Under review today, we have Major League Baseball. Pitchers and catchers reported just a few days ago. So I've got baseball to talk about. I'm excited about it. This is right up my alley. I'm going to give MLB predictions for every team. Uh, kind of disagreeing with a lot of consensus around national media and fans all over Twitter. So I'm going to tell you why I disagree and come in with my expectations for every team for the 2021 season. Um, then I want to talk a little March Madness. College basketball is winding down here. March Madness is in the air. NCAA tournament has been missed by sports fans everywhere, and we're in the season now. It's right around the corner, so that's really exciting, and a couple college hoops takes for you. The NBA All-Star Game, we have the starting lineups. The full roster for the NBA All-Star Game will be announced tomorrow, so I'm going to give my preemptive roster of my own, what players I think should make the cut. And then rounding things out with a new segment where I go over some of the sports debates that were left for me on Twitter. I asked for controversial sports takes and arguments that were left for me in my mentions. So I'm going to go over those and explain why my listeners are either very right or very wrong. And a lot of research went into all of this. So all that and more coming up after further review. Today is Monday, February 22nd, 2021, and this is After Further Review with Sam Phelan. It is also our first episode in two weeks. After a bye week and off week last week, I was feeling a little bit under the weather. My voice wasn't doing very well, so I took a break from recording. Wanted to make sure I was able to do it to the best of my ability when I put something out, but unfortunately... Kind of fortunately, but also unfortunately, we didn't miss a whole lot because we have officially hit the lull in sports that comes every February. It's that time when the NFL has just wrapped up, Major League Baseball is just starting up, but not yet till games or regular season or, or anything yet. We're not even at conference tournament in basketball yet, so you're approaching the all-star break for, for NBA and no real college basketball, so not a ton going on, not a ton of major stories or games to cover, but we're going to have a show regardless for you, because even when there's not sports going on, we can still be looking forward to sports going on and looking forward to what is to come, and for me personally, I don't know about everybody else out there, but for me right now, I am in full baseball mode and baseball swing. Now, I I'm a baseball fan. It's always been my favorite sport, so I'm a baseball guy through and through, but right when you get around February and snow starts melting and temperatures start coming up and you start seeing all your favorite players going down to spring training and almost all the free agents have signed, it is, it's officially baseball season for me. It's, it's baseball mood, nonstop. So I wanted to talk about the Major League Baseball season now that we are approaching it here and Opening day is just a little bit over a month away right now. And, I mean, spring training games are going to start later this week. But I wanted to talk about the season and address some of the things that have been going on. It's been a pretty chaotic offseason with COVID-19 kind of messing with the market a little bit and a slow-moving market. But with all the additions teams have made, with the outlook of, of rosters and how rosters have began, began to shape up here, I want to go through and give my predictions on every Major League Baseball team. Uh, I'll give some award predictions maybe, why not? But I, I do want to go through and give 
my full season predictions just so we can uh, I, I can have that on the record and do it for myself really to get to really get into this baseball thing. So I've gone through, I've set a record and a prediction for every team that I want to go over. Now, one of the interesting things that's going on in baseball at the moment is a lot of turnover, I would say, in what teams are are contending. You've kind of had the last wave from like maybe 2015 to 2019, 2020 of teams that have been in your contending window. So, I mean, the Dodgers are always going to be there. The Yankees are always going to be there. Teams like that. But, you know, previously we've seen a lot of good Giants teams, a lot of good Cubs teams, a lot of good Astros teams, the Red Sox teams, teams that have dominated this era of baseball in recent memory for the last five, six, seven years. But I think there's a lot of turnover beginning to happen and a lot of baseball powerhouses beginning to emerge. But what a lot of media and myself as well don't agree on necessarily is what teams are going to be those powerhouses. There's been a lot of upstart teams, teams making big additions, teams with young cores and high high prospects, highly rated prospects. So which of those teams, though, is going to be the team that is the next Houston Astros, is the next Chicago Cubs, is the team that is in the playoffs every year, in the World Series every year, or at least a World Series contender every year, and and has set themselves up in a position to do that. Now, a lot of people disagree on it, on what teams are ready and what teams aren't ready. So I'm going to go ahead and give those predictions, but I want to start just by going team by team, division by division, and I'm going to give records for every team, uh, some teams quicker than others, but like a lot, and you might disagree with some of it, but I, I want to go over why I feel this way about each team in particular. So AL East is where I want to start. I always kind of start with the AL East whenever I do stuff like this, and I'm not really sure why. I guess my brain just functions that way where it plays AL East first in my head. But AL East, nevertheless, first place, New York Yankees at 101 and 61 is what I have them at. A lot of people a little skeptical of the Yankees. I have to say I am too. They have their injury history. They have been known to lose some of their star players and have them off the field for extended periods of time, especially now with the hits that their pitching staff has taken. They lost J.A. Happ. I don't know how big of an asset he was to begin with. They lost Masahiro Tanaka, but they've been losing. They lost James Paxton, too. They've been losing a lot of pieces to their rotation that uh, provide a lot of depth. They brought in Jamison Tyone from the Pirates. They brought in Corey Kluber two guys good pitchers but I mean both of those names are directly associated with injury both of those guys have had elbow and shoulder problems in their career that have kept them off the field for quite some time so I don't know if their pitching is going to be healthy Severino the same way good pitcher not sure if he can stay on the field the reason I have them this high with those concerns is I just think their lineup is too good and their division isn't great I don't like the Rays have taken a mild step back, probably. The Red Sox have been in this little rebuilding process. I'll get to the Blue Jays in a little bit, and of course, Baltimore. But I, I think even with a few injuries, even with mediocre pitching, I think they're far and away the best team in this division. They're going to hit the baseball well. They have a ton of depth on the offensive side of the ball. So when they've lost guys like Aaron Judge or Giancarlo Stanton in the past, it hasn't been a huge deal for them. They just continue to add, add, add. And I think they will continue to. I think if pitching is a real problem for the Yankees come the trade deadline, I mean, we know Brian Cashman's not going to sit on his hands at the trade deadline. We know he's going to go out and get the players that he feels is necessary to bring his team 
to a World Series or, or bring his team to be a World Series contender. And if that, there's a hole there, I think he fills the hole well. So that's why I don't doubt the Yankees. I know they have the resources to just continually pad their roster and pad their depth. So who knows if it'll be a problem. Best case scenario for them, all these guys kind of hit. Davey Garcia develops a little bit on the pitching side as well. But they have the bullpen. They have the offense. I think they're a slam dunk first place team in the AL East. Now, I have the Rays in second at 90-72, and 72, um, and I know they lost Blake Snell. I know they lost Charlie Morton, two great pitchers, very, very good pitchers, and that's going to hurt Tampa Bay a lot, but I still think they have the the pitching to get it done. They have Glass now, Yarbrough, they brought in Chris Archer, they brought in Michael Waka. they have the young guy, Brendan McKay, the two-way guy, they got Luis Patino, so I... I don't know. I, I believe in the the Rays' development staff and their coaching staff to get the most out of their guys, and I think their pitching is going to be fine. I feel like people doubt them every year and say, oh, the Rays are going to be bad. They don't have a huge name here. They don't have a huge name there. But you, you just look at them down the line and are like, oh, wow, still a very good team with a very good bullpen, very good pitching staff. They do the little things right. I think they're still the second-best team in this division. A lot of people would probably disagree with me on that and put Toronto above them, but I just think they have a more filled out roster, a little bit more depth, and they've proven it. I don't know why they have to continually prove themselves year after year. So 90 and 72 is a, is a small step back, but that's all I think they're going to take. I do think they're a playoff team again, just maybe not as dominant of a force as people thought they could be had they held on to uh, some of their guys. So then Toronto is in third. And people are very, very high on Toronto and think they are an AL contender, an AL East contender even. I've seen a lot of people saying they might be better than the Yankees. I think that's crazy. I think that's wild to assume that the Blue Jays could be better than the Yankees this year. I have them in third place at 84 and 78 is my final record. And to be honest with you, I'm just not very high on the team. Yes, they added George Springer. They almost added Michael Brantley before the crazy back out, re-sign with Houston, weird thing. Bob Nightingale reporting a wrong contract or whatever, as he does all the time. But I, I'm just not a huge fan of their pitching either. I, I, They have some good young bats, but Vlad Jr. has not shown me anything. Everybody acts like Vlad Jr. is some feared hitter. Vlad Jr. hasn't been that good yet since he came up. And until he shows me signs of him being able to be a feared a feared hitter in baseball and driving in a hundred runs, hitting 30 home runs. Like I just, I I'm not huge on him. Bo Bichette, very good player. Kevin Biggio, probably going to develop, be a very good player. Randall Grichuk's a good veteran. Teoscar Hernandez just had a huge breakout, but like Lourdes Gurriel, Teoscar Hernandez, Danny Jansen, that's what we're relying on for our offense. Springer's a good pickup. Yeah, but their, their pitching staff just does not do it for me. Hyunjin Ryu, I think, is due for regression any time now, any day now. Uh, followed up Nate Pearson, Steven Matz, Robbie Ray, Ross Stripling, Tanner Roark. It's a whole lot of blah. whole lot of blah for me. I, like, I don't love anybody on the Blue Jays staff. I think they have high potential, sure, but I, I think for the Blue Jays to be good, for them to be a division contender, a World Series contender, or even a playoff team, I think just about everything for them has to go right. 
You need Nate Pearson to be very good as a rookie. You need Robbie Ray and Tanner O'Wark to have some of the best years of their career. You need no regression from Lourdes Gurriel or Teoscar Hernandez. So you need a lot, a lot, a lot to go right. I don't think it does. I don't think they're better than the Rays. I certainly don't think they're better than the Yankees, and they're a third-place team. Fourth place is Boston, which is no surprise given the first three. Obviously, Baltimore is going to be at the bottom. I almost put Boston ahead of Toronto for a little bit, but I thought that that might be a little bit too ambitious. But I have Boston at 80 and 82. I think a big bounce back is due for some of them uh, if they get some of their arms back, like Eduardo Rodriguez, Chris Sale. Those guys start to come back. It'll help their pitching staff with Nathan Eovaldi. They still have Martin Perez. The offense is a little little spotty. I like Alex Verdugo. I like Xander Bogarts, but obviously no more Mookie Betts, no more Jackie Bradley Jr. They just traded away Andrew Benintendi. So that former core of the Red Sox is gone. Rafael Devers still there. Good hitter, very good hitter, but that former core of the Red Sox is gone. So a lot of turnover is happening there uh, as, as far as that roster is concerned, but I think the Red Sox are probably like a year away. You give them one more year for Devers to establish himself as a star, Verdugo to to develop a little bit. Uh, they like this Bobby Dahlbeck kid that came up last year to play first base for him. You really see what you've got, and then I think next offseason, you'll have the money available. You'll have Chris Sale back. You'll have Eduardo Rodriguez back. You'll have everybody on deck. You can spend the money to put yourself back in a playoff contending position. But for this year, I think the Red Sox will be better, just okay. And then, well, not much to say here. Fifth place, Baltimore Orioles. I have them at 60 and 102. Um, they're going to be bad. The roster is kind of scary bad. Then some of the names that they have projected to get regular playing time for him. Yomer Sanchez is going to start at second base. They signed Felix Hernandez, and he's probably going to be in their rotation. I mean, I love teams like the Orioles this year where they just kind of bring in these veterans whose careers are dead and give them regular playing time. But I think they're in the same conversation with one, two other teams as like that bottom echelon. I know they're trying, and it's been a long, hard rebuild because of the financial situation they were in, and they were down bad. Um, and there is some upside. Ryan Mountcastle's going to be up this year, and hopefully raking for them. Adley Rushman on the come-up for them. Uh, Heston Kjurstad going to be up at some point as well. So there is some bright spots for a bright future, but in terms of the now for Baltimore, they're going to be bad. They're going to be really bad. They'll have another top pick, but 60 and 102, last place for Baltimore. So the AL Central is one of the more highly debated divisions in all of baseball right now in terms of what the final standings are going to look like. And I have to preface this by saying that I am a Chicago White Sox fan from Chicago. Um, it's no secret where my allegiances lie. That being said, first place, Chicago White Sox, 97 and 65 is my final record. I saw the Pakota projections had the White Sox in third place at like 82 wins, and I just fail to see any signs of anything on the White Sox roster that would show them to not be a division favorite or an American League favorite or contender to go to the Fall Classic. I understand White Sox fans a little disappointed that they didn't go out and get George Springer. They didn't go out and spend big money on a Trevor Bauer or that type of starting pitcher. But when you look at the White Sox roster, the core that they have established, the incredible lineup that they have, 
with good complementary veterans on affordable contracts, the way they've locked up their own individual players for long term so that they're under team control, and the way that they've complemented it by filling holes in cost-affordable ways to not, lock, to not lock themselves into any sort of financial commitment that can screw them over in the future. I love what they've been doing to fill out this roster. Lance Lynn is a very, very good starting pitcher, like in a, almost, I would say, an elite starting pitcher. He's been in the top five in the AL Cy Young conversation two years in a row now, and people thought he might win the award both years at some point throughout the year. He's emerged as a different type of pitcher. He's used his fastball in ways he never used to and put more spin on the ball than ever before, and it's con- like resulting in production on the field, on the mound. So Lance Lynn is a very good get for them, and I think Lucas Giolito, Dallas Keuchel, Lance Lynn is a great 1-2-3 punch at the top of that rotation. The other story for the White Sox pitching for me is Michael Kopech is coming back, and you have another year of development for Dylan Cease. So they brought in a new pitching coach named Ethan Katz, who was the former uh, head coach at Harvard Westlake High School in California. He was Lucas Giolito, Jack Flaherty, Tyler Glass now, pitching coach for all those guys in high school. Lucas Giolito attributes Katz with fixing Giolito to become the ace pitcher that he is. So I think getting him a nice analytical mind, combining him with Kopech, sees some of these young arms, even Reynaldo Lopez or Carlos Rodon, if he can fix some of those guys, the White Sox could have a fierce, fierce rotation. Now, there's no question about the lineup. There's no question about the bullpen with Aaron Bummer. They just signed Liam Hendricks. So it's all about the rotation. And if Lance Lynn is good and Michael Kopech or Dylan Cease develop into a very good starting pitcher as well, they're going to have a four-headed or five-headed monster in that rotation that will make them very tough to beat for anybody in the American League. I think they're the number one team in the Central and probably the safest bet in the AL Central to win it. So at 97 and 65, I'm putting them in first place. So then I do have the Twins in second place. The Twins, a team who has dominated the Central for the last few years. They've been the back-to-back champions, I believe, gone to many postseasons and still failed to win even one postseason game, which pained for Twins fans. Um, My heart goes out to you, but not really because I'm a White Sox fan. But the Twins are, in a lot of people's mind, the odds-on favorite for the Central simply because they won it last year. So you have to bet on the team that won it and uh, added a few pieces. They brought back Nelson Cruz. They signed Angelton Simmons, Hansel Robles, um, Matt Shoemaker. Sure. I'm more concerned about the Twins' offseason losses. The Twins lost Marwin Gonzalez, Eddie Rosario, Matt Whistler, Trevor May, Sergio Romo, Jake Odorizzi, Rich Hill. They've lost a lot, a lot, a lot of assets and value from their pitching side specifically. Yes, they brought in Nelson Cruz, but Nelson Cruz was already there. They brought in J.A. Happ, who was bad for the Yankees and has had a negative impact on that team since he got there. They don't feel like they've gotten a ton better. And while they won the division last year, I think everybody should remember they won it by one game. The White Sox and the Indians were right there until the end, and the White Sox actually dominated the entire division until they choked it during the last week or so of the season when they couldn't find a win. But it's not like the Twins just won a 162-game division. I actually think the White Sox win that division and have the better team should they have played a full 162 last year. So I don't think the Twins should be viewed as this favorite or this, you know, reigning champ 
of some sort. Like they've not gotten a ton better. You could argue they've maybe lost a little bit of value and a little bit of depth in in the most important places of baseball. And being not like the best team, having some guys who could potentially regress, I don't love the Twins. I think they could potentially win the division. They could certainly make the playoffs. But in my predictions, I don't know if it happens or not. And then I mentioned them briefly, but I think the entire baseball world is sleeping on the Cleveland Indians because they traded Carlos Carrasco, because they got rid of Trevor Bauer and Mike Clevenger, and they traded Francisco Lindor, so everybody views the Indians as a team that is going into a rebuild mode, and while that might be the case, I'm not sure anybody can rule the Indians out from being a postseason contender simply because their pitching is one of the best in all of baseball. Shane Bieber is still an absolute stud. Zach Plesek, very good pitcher, Zach Plesek is. Aaron Savali, Tristan McKenzie, Cal Quantrill in the bullpen, James Karinchak in the bullpen. They have good, good, talented young arms and high upside on that pitching staff. Whereas a White Sox fan, or as any baseball fan, I think you have to sit here and look at the Indians and actually be afraid that they could sit you down. They could go Bieber, Plesak, Savali, one, two, three, sit you down, one, two, three, and all of a sudden you've gotten swept by a team that you thought was a rebuilder. Now their offense isn't great. Jose Ramirez is still good. They still have some successful good pieces. They nabbed Eddie Rosario from the Twins. So the, the offense is a struggle, and it's probably going to haunt them. But I think their pitching staff just might be good enough to carry them past more teams than most may think and do a better record than most may think. I have them at 84 and 78. I would not be shocked if I don't I don't see the Indians going under 500. I'll say that straight off the bat. I don't see them losing or uh, winning any less than 80 81 games, but I wouldn't be surprised if I saw them touch 90 and, and reach reach that high because they they are a very 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 talented ball club with very good pitching and throughout a 162 game marathon throughout the dog days of August it's going to be that pitching staff that sets some of these teams apart so i expect cleveland to be in the mix late Kansas City in fourth place, um, and Kansas City, to me, while they're not a good team, I have them at 71 and 91, Kansas City's going to be annoying, just annoying. They have some pretty good players with Whit Merrifield, Jorge Soler, they got Andrew Benintendi, Mondesi, they have decent players in Kansas City, and they've made a couple steps in the right direction. They got Mike Miner, which I thought was a tremendous signing. I loved the Mike Miner signing, and I think there's a lot of teams who could use pitching help who should be regretting not pouncing on Mike Miner the way the Royals did two weeks into the offseason. Uh, but I think they're going to be annoying. Just a team that plays spoiler to some of these contending teams often, you know, they're going to be able to take a series from uh, the Yankees or the White Sox or the Twins or whoever it is. But the Royals are going to be in the mix. They're not going to be good. They're not going to be a playoff team, but they're definitely going to be good enough to upset a couple teams that uh, have higher aspirations than they do. The Tigers in fifth, uh, in last place in the cellar at 66 and 96. The Tigers are just, they're on a path that is going to take a lot to fix. They put themselves in a really bad position in the early 2010s where once everything kind of went south, they lost in the World Series and 
just ever everything went bad for the Tigers in a hurry, and they were in a a bad situation with some of their financial flexibility and the way of their their roster makeup. But they've also, like the Royals, taken some steps in the right direction. They've been trying to basically sign just about everybody. They've been very active in the. Uh, free agent market and the trade market just trying to fill out a more competitive major league roster i think they've done a good job of that i love it when teams do this like i said teams like the orioles or tigers when they bring in some of these veterans so that they can play a little bit more they can be a little bit more competitive and we can see some of these guys play uh, for as many years as possible but yeah they're a last place team i don't think they're better than kansas city they just don't have the pitching to be better than kansas city matthew boyd is their number one was just awful last year and i'm not sure where they really go from here now good young arms Tariq scuble casey mize they have some good young arms but for the now i don't love the tigers pitching uh i think they have the worst pitching of anybody in the al central probably the worst lineup as well and so yeah they are in last place 66 and 96 for the tigers the AL West is another interesting one for me because there wasn't really a team that stuck out to me in the AL West as being a division champion. I don't really love any of the teams. I pick the A's to win the division at 92-70. and 70. They had a loss of Marcus Simeon, loss of Liam Hendricks, but Sean Manaya is still there in the pitching staff. They brought back Mike Fires, Frankie Montas, Chris Bassett, AJ Puck now with another year of development, so... Uh, and Jesus Luzardo, too, very good young arm who pitched very well in the playoffs against the White Sox as well. But, uh, the yeah, so that's the A's for me. I just think they're a typical A's team. They have Chapman, Olsen, Loriano. Those guys are still there. I think they'll be competitive. I don't think they'll blow anybody away. They don't strike me as a first-place team, but in their division, they kind of have to be, in my opinion. Second place, I'm taking the Los Angeles Angels who in a heartbreaking fashion go 86 and 76 if you're keeping track at home that puts them one game out of a wild card in a playoff spot so heartbreaking for the angels heartbreaking for baseball if mike trout came that close and didn't get into a wild card game to show what he could do um it's just it's the same old story they have trout they have some good they've rendon trout and rendon are two of the top five probably position players in all of baseball and that they just carry that lineup. Otani's been a beast. Justin Upton healthy could be good. They lost Tommy Listella, which I think hurts them a little bit. Their lineup's going to be fine, though. The question is, can their pitching do good enough to get them to the postseason? Can it hold out for 162 games? Can they have four guys, five guys that give you 30, 32 starts, pitch well, and get you there? And I don't know if they do. Dylan Bundy had a good year last year. He was kind of a big breakout candidate for them in a... In a a, a big ray of sunshine for that Angels pitching staff. I liked the Jose Quintana signing. I thought it was cheap and cost-effective, and a guy that was going to come in and be relatively consistent. I think now that he's had an, more time to come back from his injury, he's going to be the Jose Quintana of old. And by old, I mean Jose Quintana early on with the Cubs, not White Sox Jose Quintana. But I think you've got a good low four ERA guy in Quintana. The rest of it, kind of unknown. Griffin Canning, what is he? Can Shohei Otani pitch? Who knows what he'll be in Andrew Heaney. Um, how competitive, how much does he still have in the tank? So a couple question marks there, but I do think they're better than people are giving them credit for. I think their roster uh, with Trout and Rendon for a full 162 with a couple pitching additions that they made, I think they'll be better. They brought in uh, Alex Cobb as well from Baltimore, who's a veteran who 
Could be pretty good, could be really bad. Who knows what Alex Cobb's got, but at least he's a veteran who you trust to go out there and at least take the ball uh, once every five days for you. But the Angels, I think, are going to be competitive. They'll be in the mix late. I don't think they're a playoff team. I don't think they... I think their record will be helped by the fact that they're playing in a weak division in the West, and that'll help them over teams like maybe Minnesota, maybe teams like the Rays, who are in a little bit of a more competitive division. So that is what will keep them around, but I don't think they get it done and actually get in. Third place, I have the Astros. Uh, Justin Verlander's injury hurts them. Simply put, I don't think they have the pitching staff or the bullpen to make a deep run. They still have the big pieces on offense, and that's great for them. I'm sure those guys will produce, but... Zach Greinke's going to decline. He's kind of wrapping down his career here. Jose Urquidy, some of these other guys, they just don't have the pitching staff to get it done uh, for a full 162. I don't like their starting rotation much. I think they've taken a few hits in the bullpen as well. Dusty Baker's kind of an outdated old manager. I just don't love the Astros. I think their window's kind of closing, and I think it closed with the cheating scandal that hit them. And once baseball kind of found out, then uh, that world just closed off for the Astros. So I think this is the first year where we really see the Astros not make the playoffs, and they really kind of hit their hit their decline a little bit. So Astros at 83-79, and 79, not good enough for the postseason. Fourth place, Seattle. Seattle uh, is bad, not a good team. They have some young pieces in place uh, to to make them somewhat competitive, similar to like maybe Kansas City in a way, where Seattle, I could see them with Justice Sheffield, Justin Dunn, uh, Kyle Lewis. I don't know if Jared Kalenic will come up at some point this year. Probably we'll see him for a little bit. So they have some pieces that are going to be fun to watch. I think the Mariners will certainly be fun to watch. But uh, just not a contending team. They're going to get beat up on. They have a really, really bad bullpen. Really bad bullpen. Um, and a bad back half of the pitching rotation, as well as some holes on offense. Just a roster that is need, needs a lot of help, and they're going to get it in the next few years as these prospects start to come up. But where they're at right now it is not a good spot for the immediate future. Then in last place is the Texas Rangers. Texas is bad. Texas is a lot worse than Seattle. And I don't think people really realize it when they first think of Texas, but Texas's roster is loaded with guys that most baseball fans probably haven't even heard of. Their starting rotation projected right now by MLB.com, Kyle Gibson, Kohei Arihara, Mike Fultonevich, Colby Allard, Dane Dunning. Other options, Kyle Cody, Taylor Hearn. There's just not a ton there. Nate Lau in their starting lineup. Jose Trevino in their starting lineup. Rubnetto Doors been awful. Isaiah Kanafalefa still there. They're, the Rangers roster is just bad. I actually like some of the moves that new general manager Chris Young has made for them. I thought the David Dahl signing was very, very good. A very good move for them. I think Dane Dunning's a good prospect and a good get back for Lance Lynn. So I think he's made some right moves in, in those aspects, obviously. I, I also like the Fultonevich signing. Fultonevich being uh, a very good pitcher for the Braves just a few years ago. Looks a little shot. People have their concerns about him and his character and, and his health and lots of things about him. But uh, I actually like taking a flyer on him, especially in the state that their roster is in right now. But yeah, Texas is, I think they're the, probably the worst team in this division. They also, like Seattle, have a very bad bullpen. Um, a lot of veterans who are just kind of hanging around, extending their career. and uh, But they have cap flexibility. That's one thing that they're gaining is more money to play with when the future does come and when it does show up. Uh, but for now, 65 and 97 and last place. And that concludes the American League. So 
going over now to the National League, and I'm going to start in the National League East because I started in the East for the AL, and also because the NL East is probably the most competitive NL division. I said that for the Central, but the NL East, a lot of people have different opinions. Um, I'm taking the Braves at first place in 93 and 69. I'll actually give you the whole thing. So I'm going to go Braves at 93 and 69, Mets at 88-74, Nationals 85-77, Phillies with 83 wins, and then the Marlins rounding it out with 70 wins. Um, so four very competitive teams. I think the Nationals are one of the most underrated teams in baseball right now. I think they could really make a push. I liked their additions of Josh Bell. I liked the addition of John Lester that they had. I liked the addition of Kyle Schwarber that they had and the way they filled out a roster around Juan Soto and Victor Robles and Max Scherzer and so on and so on. But uh, I do like the Nationals roster a lot. I think they're going to be competitive in that division for sure. The Mets, obvious reasons. Lots of additions for the Mets. Francisco Lindor, Carlos Carrasco. Uh, they signed Trevor May. They've they've signed just about everybody on the planet. Kevin Pillar went there. Jonathan VR went there. So uh, the Mets just continue to make moves. They never really got their slam dunk guy in, in Bauer. We thought they were going to get Bauer. Didn't get him. Didn't get Springer. But Francisco Lindor was a slam dunk for them. And if you're a Mets fan, you have to be happy with Lindor being uh, the big fish kind of that you brought in for the offseason. The Phillies have a good lineup. They still have a good lineup. And I like Harper and Hoskins and Segura and Gregorius. I, I like the Phillies, but I don't trust the Phillies pitching straight up. And I like Nola and Zach Wheeler. But after that, what else do you have? Like, what else, are, what else is going to get you over the hump? Spencer Howard, Zach Eflin, Vince Velasquez, Matt Moore. I don't trust those guys down the stretch, and I certainly don't trust them in a playoff series. So while I, I like the makeup of the Phillies, the Phillies are just... The one thing that's hurt the Phillies the last few years was Jake Arrieta not being a successful signing. I think if Jake Arrieta could have given them a couple years like he did... Uh, and he doesn't have to be Cy Young Jake Arrieta, but if he was competitive, very good starting pitcher Jake Arrieta that he was with the Cubs for a little bit, I think the Phillies would have won a few division titles or, or contended for a few World Series. But that wasn't the case, and they just haven't had the pitching depth, and I still don't think they have the pitching depth. So I have them in fourth because I don't think they're better than those other three teams. I just don't think they're... Just top to bottom, I don't think they're as complete as the other three teams. Um, the third one, of course, being Atlanta, who I have winning the division. I love Marcelo Zuna coming back. I love Freddie Freeman. I love Dansby Swanson and Ozzie Albies. Of course, I love Ronald Acuna Jr. Their lineup is nasty, nasty, top to bottom. The whole thing is great. And I like what they've done on the pitching side of things, too. Max Freed really came into his own last year. Max Freed really stepped up. Mike Soroka, very good pitcher. They got Charlie Morton, who's really, really good. Charlie Morton is going to be an anchor for them. I think he can be what they hoped Cole Hamels would be last year. Of course, that didn't work out with Cole Hamels. He only pitched one game, I think, for him. But I think Charlie Morton is what they hoped Cole Hamels would be. And now that Ian Anderson is up as well and pitching as well as he did uh, in 2020, they have a good, good rotation and a lot to rely on with a good bullpen. I think they're the most complete team. They're the division winner from last year and the year before. They have to be the odds-on favorite, and I think you're foolish to bet on anybody except the Braves to repeat in the NL East again. Then rounding things out, it's the Marlins at 70-92 in last place. Um, and, I mean, they're okay. The Marlins are fine. Aguilar, Dickerson, Marte, they just got Adam Duvall. I like that signing. That's actually a pretty big loss for the Braves that people really aren't talking about. I don't think it'll matter that much for them, but... Adam Duvall's a pretty good player and had a couple big hits for him last year. 
Uh, so I like Duvall coming in. They just, uh, you know, they're in a little bit of a segue period right now. They're they're moving over to being a little bit more competitive. I think the Marlins, we're kind of done seeing them being in the laughing stock of baseball. Of course, they made a, a playoff appearance and won a playoff series, made it to the NLDS last year. So uh, we love that for the Marlins, but I, I do think they're done being a laughing stock. I think they're going to start making their way up a little bit, kind of being that pesky team that sticks around a little bit more and is a player for free agents some of the time because Miami's a great place to play and they have a lot of money to play with. Um, but yeah, for now, it's just not their time. 70-92, last place, and not bad considering they're playing in probably the best division in baseball. Now, maybe the worst division in baseball is the NL Central, and I say that because there are four teams that are semi-competitive, I suppose, but none of them are really contenders in a lot of in the eyes of many and I have to agree with them I can't see any team from the NL Central really winning a pennant or even probably winning a playoff series and they also have the worst team in baseball so starting top to bottom number one is the Cardinals for me I have them at 88 and 74 by far the worst division winner of any team I think that's because those top four are going to beat up on each other a lot for one and also because they just don't overwhelm me the Cardinals had kind of had a really down year last year I love the Arenado trade obviously Nolan Arenado great player and it really kind of set them apart for me as being like you know what this team's going to go for it and do what they have to do because if there's a division to be won St. Louis wants it the most so I do like that out of them and that made an impact it's why I'm putting them at the top and I like their pitching as well. I like Jack Flaherty. I like Miles Michaelis. Uh, I like some of the arms that they have. Dakota Hudson is pretty good down there as well. So not a bad pitching rotation for the Cardinals. I think overall they're probably the best team, but I also wouldn't be shocked to see them finish in third or fourth because there's just that much parity going around the NL Central at the time. Second place for me is the Milwaukee Brewers, who have a very good lineup. Uh, they added Colton Wong, thought that was a great move. Keston Hura, Christian Yelich still there, Lorenzo Cain. A lot of big big names on that, that offense, and I really like the Brewers for those reasons, but I can't take the Brewers because I don't like any of their pitching behind Brandon Woodruff and Corbin Burns, and after that, it's a whole lot of question marks for me. They have a good bullpen and a great reliever in Josh Hader. I like Devin Williams as well, but I just I don't know. The Brewers are so many so many no names and so much unknown that it would be hard for me to sit here and look at this Brewers team and think that they were as good or better than that Brewers team two years ago uh, that went to the NLCS because I don't think that's the case. And so I think. They're weaker than the Cardinals in a lot of areas. I, I don't like their lineup more than I like the Cardinals. I don't like their pitch. I love Brandon Woodruff, love Corbin Burns, but in terms of a whole staff, I don't like their pitching more than I like the Cardinals. But I also don't think that they're going to be a team that regresses enough to be down and not be in the mix late. So that's why I have them in second place. Um, at the end of the day, I think that's probably where they'll finish or maybe second or third. I'd be shocked if they won the division, but shocked if they weren't in it until the last week or two. 85 and 77 final record for them. Third and fourth, I've gone back and forth on quite a few times between the Reds and the Cubs. I think I'm ultimately going to go with the Cubs at 80 and 82. Um, and a frustrating offseason for Cubs fans as it should be. 80 and 82 is not good great i mean it's fine but when you consider that that places them just eight games behind the division winner in my book 
you start to ask questions like, okay, well, you added Jock Peterson. Well, what if you hadn't traded away you Darvish? What if you had re-signed John Lester and kept him in your rotation? What if you had done the bare minimum to keep your team together and then made a little addition or two like Jock Peterson or like Andrew Chafin or whatever relievers they added to that team as well? What if you had done both of those at the same time? I like bringing Jake Arrieta back because, sure, it's good for morale. Cubs fans are going to love him. He's going to love being there. That'll feel right and feel good. But they they just could have done more. That being said, I think Baez probably bounces back a good amount. It'd be really hard for him not to. So I think Baez bounces back. I think Chris Bryant bounces back. Um, I think Ian Happ is due to regress probably a little bit. He had a really, really good season. I don't think he's that good of a hitter regularly. But I think the Cubs are going to be okay. And then you'll get down the stretch and we'll get into August. And you'll just start to realize they don't have enough there. And you'll start kicking. They'll start kicking themselves because they'll realize we probably could have had enough there had we been able to hold it all together and ponied up the money to do so. Which doesn't mean that they would have been like a World Series contender. Like I said, I don't think any of these teams are World Series contenders. But I, especially in the situation that the Cubs are in, where you've had this window for the last five years, five six years or so, where you've been competitive, the most competitive window in Chicago Cubs history. To close it when there is still another year of who knows, it feels so foolish. I mean, the Washington Nationals won the 2019 World Series when everybody thought their window was closed. They lost Bryce Harper and everybody thought, okay, the Nationals have to be done now. But they made a few additions. They kept the main team together. They added Patrick Corbin. They added Howie Kendrick, a few pieces here and there. And they found themselves in the World Series because you don't know what's going to happen if you can sneak into the postseason. And in a year where the division is so weak, I think the Cubs could have snuck in had they kept everyone, and they haven't, so I don't think they will. I have Cincinnati in fourth place, and I think they are probably one of the more disappointing teams of the last year two years. When they added Mike Moustakis, Nicholas Castellanos, Sonny Gray, Trevor Bauer, Luis Castillo, all these guys are there. People thought the Reds were going to be back to the Joey Votto, Jay Bruce, Brandon Phillips Reds that uh, won that division a few times, but that just hasn't been the case. I don't think that's going to change this year. I think they're going to play well offensively at times. I think they're going to have good starts at times. I just don't think the team as a whole um, has enough consistency day in and day out to really piece stuff together, which was the story we saw for the Reds last year. We saw Reds go on streaks where they were seemingly unbeatable. They, their pitching staff was shoving. The offense was hammering everything, and they you couldn't beat them. And then we also saw games like we did in the playoffs against the Braves where even when Trevor Bauer throws a shutout, they can't score. They can't even push one across. And then the next night, they score eight runs, and they give up 10, 11 runs. So I think this is going to be the Reds team that we see. I think they'll hang around 500. They'll dwindle and fall apart late. Um, they might be in contention for the NL Central for a little bit, but it'll quickly end. I considered putting them above the Cubs, but I think the Cubs have a better team on paper, so I'm going to stick with uh, what my gut says about the roster and put them as a fourth-place team with 78 wins and 84 losses. Pittsburgh in last place, uh, I think this one's pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple. I don't want to ramble or talk about it too much. 58 and 104 in my book, worst team in baseball in my book, pretty despicable in my book. Their entire payroll is the lowest in baseball. Trevor Bauer gets paid more than their entire payroll right now. 
Um, lots of bad things going on in Pittsburgh. If you're in Pittsburgh, get out of Pittsburgh. Uh, Joe Musgrove did it. Jamison Tyone did it. Hopefully the rest of their decent players can do it too because, uh, yeah, it's bad. They have a few good prospects, but it's bad, and they're going to be bad. And, yeah, that that's all I have to say on that. Okay, NL West, I'm going to go bottom to top here, fifth place to first place because it gets interesting at the top. Last place is the Rockies. They traded Arenado. They don't have much pitching beyond Marquez. Uh, it's kind of a mess there. They have fallen apart in the last few years from a team that went to the playoffs for two consecutive seasons. So th- that's where I have the Rockies. I don't see them. I mean, I could see them being as good as third, maybe if everything went right. But I think on paper, they're probably the worst team top to bottom uh, and have the most inconsistencies in their rosters. So 64-98, Rockies in last place. Fourth place. San Francisco Giants, a team that was hovering around playoff contention last year and hovering around 500, uh, a team most people have in third place. I have them in fourth at 67 and 95. I think they're a lot of, a lot worse than people give them credit for. They were kind of thriving last year because Kevin Gausman balled out, Donovan Solano balled out, Mike Yastrzemski balled out. While I think all those guys are solid, good players, I don't think any of them are going to have the season that they did last year. Um, Posey will be back, sure. Longoria will be back, sure. Belt will be back, sure. A lot of those guys are washed. They're nothing special anymore. Joey Bart will be up. I'm excited to watch him. I don't like Alex Dickerson. I don't like Austin Slater. I don't like much of their pitching staff at all behind Gausman. Johnny Cueto's getting kind of old, and, and he's getting up there. And most of their bullpen is left for other locations and better opportunities. So they have decent prospects. Um, hopefully the future is brighter for the Giants. It's kind of weird to see them be so bad, but I do think they're a fourth place team on paper and a fourth place team on the field in 2021. Third place, Arizona Diamondbacks, 71 and 91. Incredibly disappointed with Mad Bum last year, uh, but I do think he bounces back. I like Merrill Kelly uh, a good amount. I like Zach Gallen a, a lot amount. I like Zach Gallen a lot. Um, So I think those three are going to be pretty solid for them. On the pitching side of things, the bullpen is meh. It's kind of meh. That's, I mean, that's all about, all you can really say about a Diamondbacks bullpen. And so the offense is the same way. Kedal Marte, good player. Cole Calhoun had a great year last year. So they have some upsides, some bright sides, um, but Jake Lamb was starting for him. Nick Ahmed's still starting for him. I don't I don't love a team Christian Walker, Carson Kelly. They just don't jump off on paper to me as being a team that's going to have a consistent offense to hang with the other big boys in their division. I think they're okay. I think having to play the Dodgers and Padres as many times as they will will hurt their record ultimately. I do think they're better than the Giants and the Rockies, 71 and 91 for the D-backs. So second place, San Diego Padres. 162, a 100-game winner not winning the division. Um, the Straight up, I don't think the Padres are as good as the Dodgers are in, in, in any way. Um, they just signed Fernando Tatis to a massive extension, which is great for them to have a guy like that locked up. I like uh, the, the way their roster looks. They've done an incredible thing on, on the, the pitching side, an incredible on the pitching side. They got Joe Musgrove, Hugh Darvish, Blake Snell. They have Chris Paddock. They have all of their own guys that are still there with Mike Clevenger in the wing, injured right now, not pitching. So that is a scary, scary, scary rotation. The Padres are filthy in that regard. Their bullpen is okay. 
Um, that's all it is to me is okay. Nobody really sticks out. I, it, it's serviceable. I like Austin Nola. I like Manny Machado. I like Fernando Tatis Jr. I just don't think they're better than the Dodgers. There's too many holes and unknowns where I could see. Like, like if we're comparing the Dodgers to the Padres, I probably think the Padres have a slightly better pitching staff, but it's only slightly. Offensively, um, Mookie Betts, I'm taking him over everybody in the Padres outfield. Cody Bellinger, taking him over everybody in the Padres outfield. I'll take Max Muncy over Eric Hosmer. No question about that one. I'll take Tatis over Seager, but Seager's a good player. I'll take Machado over Turner, but Turner's a good player. I'll take Will Smith over Austin Nola. I, th- I just think overall... When you look at their roster side by side, I like more of the Dodgers. I think the Dodgers are just more consistent. They have more veterans. They have more playoff experience. Uh, a lot of these guys on the on the Padres are young. They've never really felt what it's like to win before. So I think you get them in a 162, they're going to be good. They're going to be very, very good. Um, but it comes down to who's going to be able to win the games. They should win more often. I think the veterans on the Dodgers uh, give them the upper hand in that way, and I think they're the division favorite. Uh, so I have the Dodgers at 105 and 57, uh, far and away the best team in baseball. I don't think anybody would really argue that when you look at their roster. I mean, Trevor Bauer, Clayton Kershaw, Walker Bueller. Wow. Wow. Dustin May, Julio Urias. They're nasty. They have a good bullpen. They keep adding on to their bullpen. They like they they just don't stop. It it's a team that doesn't care about salary cap. They don't care. They have the homegrown prospects. They're going to spend the money in free agency. They're going to go and get the biggest names in trades just because they can. And they're going to flex their muscles and do it. There's a reason that the Dodgers have won 80 games and made the playoffs almost every year since 2000 and it's because they're run well, top to bottom. The same with the Cardinals and the Yankees. They're just always going to be in it. They're far and away the best team. 105-57, and 57, uh, I'm taking them to win that division and ultimately lead the National League. So yeah, uh, for my award predictions then, I want to just do MVPs real quick. I don't really want to dive into it too much. But I do want to say Mike Trout's going to win an MVP next year. I would bet the house on it. He said today he had a bad season last season, which had a 993 OPS, which was still fifth in baseball in the biggest offensive category and second in the American League in that category. Having a bad year. Um, and he's right in his prime right now. He's finally at like that athletic peak that everybody's been waiting for him to hit. He's at 29. So this is Mike Trout's year in 162. I think he does something scary this year offensively, especially if the Angels are more competitive um, and kind of in it down the stretch. Trout's going to be, you know, pedal to the metal all season long. He's going to win an MVP. National League, I think it's Juan Soto's time. I do. I He had an almost a 1,200 OPS last year, granted smaller sample size in 47 games. Shocking to me, honestly, that he didn't win it. Shocking that he didn't win it. And a 1.185 OPS last year at age 22. He Actually, he was 21 at the time for almost all of the season last year. That kid is incredible. And he's going to come down at some point, just like in, in the span of 162-game season. But, he, man, can he hit. He is going to carry the Nationals this year. I said that they're underrated and going to be better than people think. This is Juan Soto's year to win MVP. You can take that to the bank. 
Okay, that's enough baseball. That's enough MLB. I want to talk NBA and NBA All-Star Game, which is being held, finally. Uh, I think a lot of sports fans are happy to hear it, and a lot of Karens are pretty upset to hear it. But the NBA All-Star Game is going to happen, and the All-Star starting lineups came out. So going over those, and then going over my full roster, what I think has to happen, honestly, in order for the integrity of the NBA All-Star Game to be maintained. But first, all right, going over the lineup real quick. So the West, the backcourt was Luka Doncic, Stephen Curry. You could have made an argument for Damian Lillard to be there, but I don't think anybody's going to really have a huge complaint with those two. They're incredible, having incredible seasons. And backcourt, LeBron James, Nikola Jokic, Kawhi Leonard, no arguments from me. You could maybe put Anthony Davis in your conversation. I like the three that are there, so happy with that. The East, a little different. Kyrie Irving is going to be a starting backcourt with Bradley Beal. And then your front court is going to be Kevin Durant, Giannis, and Joel Embiid, who is having an MVP caliber year, getting the start in the All-Star game as well. So the rest of my rosters don't look different than most people in the sense that we all kind of know who's going to be in the game. We all know that you're going to get James Harden in the East. You're going to get Jalen Brown in the East. You're going to get the superstars that were left off in both both conferences. So by that, I mean Paul George is going to make the team. Anthony Davis is going to make the team. Zion is going to be an all-star this year as well. Um, and then in the East, guys like Jalen Brown are going to make it. I would say James Harden's going to make it. Trey Young's going to make it. None of that comes as a surprise to anybody. But there are three guys in particular, two East and one West, that I need to talk about that need to make an all-star roster because of the seasons that they are having and for the integrity of the NBA All-Star game. If we want to put in the guys that uh, are are having the All-Star caliber years, just because they don't have an All-Star name or haven't been in the game before uh, doesn't mean they shouldn't be able to be back in it. So here's my three. Number one, out West, it's Donovan Mitchell and... Donovan Mitchell was an all-star last year. Donovan Mitchell has the all-star caliber name. He has the all-star caliber nickname. I just don't think people are talking enough about Donovan Mitchell and the star player that he that he is kind of transforming to be in front of our eyes. Donovan Mitchell, not only is he the, the scoring leader, probably the best player overall on the Jazz, the Jazz also happened to be legitimately the best team in the NBA. They're sitting at 24 and 6 as I record this. They're 9 and 1 in their last 10. They've beaten all of the good teams in the NBA and hung with them, and a lot of that has to do with the scoring and the leadership of Donovan Mitchell. People thought the Jazz, myself included, thought the Jazz were done when that COVID outbreak hit and Rudy Gobert tested positive and it seemed like there was a lot of arguing and just kind of frustration within the clubhouse. I thought that this little window and this little core that they had put together was done. They have answered in an incredible way. Now, they have good role players. I like Mike Conley a lot. I like Royce O'Neal. I like some of these guys that are playing for him, putting in solid minutes and doing the job. Joe Ingles as well. But Donovan Mitchell has really developed into a more efficient scorer and the type of scorer that can lead a team throughout an entire NBA season. Can they do it in the playoffs? I don't know. But when you are widely considered the best player on the best team in the NBA, there is no argument for whether or not that player is an all-star. 
and I'm shocked that I'm seeing a lot. Of, I'm seeing a lot of all-star rosters that are leaving Donovan Mitchell out, and there's a lot of good players out there. A lot of like Donovan Mitchell's one of them, though. He's in that conversation. He has to be. So he's number one. Has to be on the all-star team. Better be on the all-star team when it comes out tomorrow. He's my guy. Number two is Zach Levine from the Bulls out east. He has to be a reserve uh, for the all-star team. He's been awesome. Just like the epitome of the word awesome this year. 29 points per game, five and a half rebounds, five assists, and 1.2 steals. He's shooting 52% from the floor. So not only is he an incredible scorer who can fill it up, who's explosive athletically, he's also the most efficient scorer in the NBA in terms of being a scorer. Out of the top 50, 60 scores, I believe it was top 64 scores in the NBA as of yesterday, there is no one with a higher shooting percentage than Zach Levine that plays a position that is not a power forward or center. So of all like the guards, of all the wings in the NBA that are in the top 64 in scoring, Zach Levine shoots more efficiently than all of them. He's doing everything. Like, I mean, his last game against the Kings, he made a statement. He made a statement at home at the United Center against Sacramento. 38 points, 15 of 20 shooting, four rebounds, three assists, three steals. He can do it all. And he's really taken the next step. He's no longer the Zach Levine who's a good explosive scorer but inconsistent. The type of player we once thought he was just 12 months ago. He's a different guy now. And he is looking incredible. He The best year of his career by far. He's got the Bulls in a position where they could potentially sneak into the playoffs. He's had a really good year under head coach Billy Donovan. And he's just 25 years old. That's the crazy thing about Zach Levine is he came into the league at, I mean, he was 18 coming into the the league, a young freshman out of UCLA playing for the Timberwolves at age, at age 18 and back in 2014. Now here he is seven years later, he's developed so much. He's going to keep getting better and better as he, as he gets these years on him and these miles on him. And he, he has turned into a very, very fine player. With the highlights that he's had this year and the year that he has had, it would be a shame if the All-Star team left him out. And then the last one out East is DeMontas Sabonis, who is, again, in his fifth year, like Zach Levine, is a different player this year. Just having the best year of his career, he's a double-double, triple-double machine. 21.5 points, 11.5 rebounds, almost 6 assists per game, shooting 53% from the floor. DeMontas Sabonis is very, very, very good. And he is, I mean, turning into a star. He went from being a good starter, like a good role-playing starter and a good secondary th- like piece to being a star player in Indiana where they don't even miss Victor Oladipo anymore after moving him because they know that DeMontas Sabonis is the type of star player they need to carry their organization. They're going to be a playoff team this year behind him. Um, uh, and he's just been incredible. No, he's been nothing short of incredible all year long. And just like Zach Levine, just in case he wasn't going to be an all-star, February 17th at Minnesota, he put on a show, 36 points, 17 rebounds, 10 assists, 13 of 21 shooting. Just to give everybody a little bit reminder like, oh, hey, by the way, I'm here too. My name is DeMontas Sabonis and I need to be an all-star. And uh, I agree, he does. So those are my three. Those guys have to be on the roster if there's going to be any sort of integrity into the into this process. There's some bigger names out there, sure. Bigger superstar power, sure. 
but these guys are having years that are worthy of being rewarded with all-star appearances. And if they don't, then what does the NBA all-star game even mean anymore? If we're just going to give it to the biggest names and the guys who are in it every year, then why don't we just take the same group of guys, say, all right, here you go, guys, and let them play. Let's let Dwight Howard be in the All-Star game this year. Let's let everybody who used to be in the game play. But if we're going to open this window for this next wave of All-Stars and and they're going to be allowed to break that seal, then it has to be these guys. It has to be. Plain as that. Alright, so new segment on the show. I introduced it a little bit in the last show and gave you guys a couple weeks to share stuff on Twitter, but I want to do this thing that I call Prove or Disprove, where listeners tweet me and give me some of their most controversial, highly debated, questionable sports takes, opinions, debates, anything that you believe to your core, share it with me. And then I'm going to tell you whether or not you are right or wrong. So I have four of them that I got over uh, this two-week span. And hopefully those numbers go up as the show keeps going and grows a little bit. But got four of them that I want to go over that I've looked into and and formed opinions on. So the first one of these comes from at Nate Deluzic on on Twitter. And he says very simply... Uh, by the way, the tweet was worded with uh, reply to this with your most controversial sports argument, controversial sports argument. And Nate said, Derek Jeter is overrated. Now, Derek Jeter, of course, a Hall of Famer, widely considered one of the greatest baseball players to ever live, a rookie of the year, a Hall of Famer, a whoever even knows however many time all star a billion time all star a billion time silver slugger a five-time Gold Glove Award winner, over 3,000 career hits in his career, a career average at 310. So how is it possible that somebody like this could ever be overrated? Is it possible? And strangely enough, I actually agree with Nate here. I agree with this opinion that Derek Jeter is overrated, but I think it's important to qualify what I mean when I say overrated. I do think Derek Jeter is a Hall of Famer. I do think Derek Jeter is one of the most iconic baseball players of all time. You can't tell the story of baseball without talking about Derek Jeter. 3,000 career hits. If you get that mark in my eyes, there's zero question about it. You are in the Hall of Fame. So what do I mean when I say that? The way that I view Derek Jeter is overrated is through the eyes that people can, like I said, consider him to be one of the greatest baseball players who's ever lived. They throw him in the conversation with these all-time greats, these dominant players, these guys who are just beyond life, right? Now, Derek Jeter never won an MVP. He was in the top three three times in his career, got second to once. That was his best finish back in 2006 with the Yankees. But to me, Derek Jeter has never been the dominant player that I would ever look at and think this guy should be the face of baseball. And I think that's what a lot of Derek Jeter haters and a lot of people who who hold this opinion stick by. Derek Jeter is incredible, yes, but he was he's not the face of baseball and he was never good enough to be the face of baseball. I mean, I just, I'm looking at his numbers. I, I, I looked at his stats. He played 20 seasons in the major leagues. Eight of those 20 seasons, he had an OPS plus at 100 or below 100. Now, I'm counting years that it was 101, 102, 103, 100, right there. Eight of those 20 years, 
74, 101, 103, 102, 90, 100, 52, and 76. That's eight different seasons with his OPS Plus. And if you're unfamiliar with the stat, OPS Plus talks about uh, your on-base plus slugging, which is just your regular OPS. But the OPS Plus refers to how much above average you are. So a 100 OPS is a directly average OPS and a directly average hitter. A guy who has a 150 OPS plus would be 50% above average. Or a guy with a 60% or a 60 OPS plus would be 40% below average and so on. So eight of Derek Jeter's 20 years, he was either average or below average offensively. And I mean, granted, that means that there were 12 other years in which he was above average offensively. His best year was when he had his 153 OPS plus back early in his career. That was back in 99, 153 OPS plus for Derek Jeter. But 12 of 12 of 20 years being above average as a hitter. Oh, just being above average. There's a lot of guys that are above average hitters. And the other thing Jeter had going for him all the time was his defense. The reason he was an all-star as much as he was. The reason he was such an icon. He had that little jump throw from the outfield. He was Gold Glove Award winner Derek Jeter. And and, and, and a stud defensively. Where yes, he had he was good offensively. Above average offensively. Consistency. Longevity. All of that. But he also played great defense. According to Defensive Run Saved, the statistic that is often used nowadays to calculate a player's defensive value... Derek Jeter is the worst fielder in history, of ba- in the history of baseball. He has the distinction of having the least ever defensive run saved accumulated at negative 162 defensive run saved between 2003 to the end of his career. I mean, that's not even factoring in his first few years, but from 03 to the end of his career, Derek Jeter cost the Yankees 162 runs with his poor defense. And like I said, he's a Hall of Famer. He's an icon. He's number two. He's Derek Jeter. He's a a name. The name Jeter is forever a baseball name, and he forever made it a baseball name. But Derek Jeter also being the face of baseball, a guy people consider one of the greatest ever, and you're telling me 40% of his seasons he was below average offensively? that he's also technically the worst defender of all time. Those numbers don't go with being one of the greatest ever. They don't. So in that sense, I do agree. I think Derek Jeter is overrated because he he is spoken of, I mean, as a first ballot Hall of Famer and spoken of in this light where he is just larger than life and incredible. And I get he had the star power, but statistically... No, not really. A person off the field? No, not really. Not a lot of people love Derek Jeter. A lot of people dislike Derek Jeter at times. So while, and I I think it's important because overrated does not necessarily mean bad. But people always mix the two up. The, The word overrated is simply saying that the credit that he is given, the way he is spoken of, the just the conversations people put him in and the way he is viewed is in a way that is greater 
than what he actually has warranted and deserved. And when you look at the numbers, I think it is inarguable that Derek Jeter is, in fact, overrated. Our next one comes from uh, Freed's Sports, Greg Frieders on Twitter, and he says the Bears not drafting Dan Marino in 1984 is more egregious than them not drafting Patrick Mahomes in 2017. So this one, I mean, right off the bat, by the way, I think we're referring to the 1983 draft. Marino was drafted in 83. Uh, by Miami, not 84, but regardless, 1983. Um, this one's just a hard disagree for, for me, and uh, it's a disagree for a couple of reasons. It seems pretty obvious. Um, number one, straight up, Dan Marino never wins a Super Bowl. That's number one. Patrick Mahomes has already won a Super Bowl. He's already been to two Super Bowls. He's going to beat more and win more. Dan Marino never winning a Super Bowl is is one reason why it's less egregious because as great of a quarterback as he was, and you can argue, yes, the Bears would have won multiple, multiple Super Bowls with Dan Marino. Of course you can argue that. Dan Marino never won a Super Bowl. So that is what it is, straightforward. Number two, the Bears win a Super Bowl two years after they pass on Dan Marino. The Bears win the 1985 Super Bowl, so not, not drafting Dan Marino in 1983 didn't affect them greatly, at least in the immediate future. Jim McMahon was able to get the job done as it was. The Bears, If the Bears had passed on Patrick Mahomes and won a Super Bowl in 2019 or 2020 after passing on Patrick Mahomes, I don't care that they didn't draft Mahomes. They won the Super Bowl without him. They won a Super Bowl without him. Number three reason. The Bears did not select a quarterback. The Bears trading up in 2017 and selecting a quarterback, in a different quarterback instead of Patrick Mahomes, is much different than them selecting a, posi- a player of a different position instead of a quarterback altogether. Because that means that you missed. That means that the need was there, that you were looking for it, and that you still missed. That's what makes it hurt even more. Is no, like. As a Bears fan, for Bears fans, you're looking at, at at the Bears saying, imagine this team and the one biggest hole we've been talking about is we need better quarterback play. So imagine this team with Patrick Mahomes. It's different when you consider that it, like if the Bears had taken an offensive tackle or a linebacker, a defensive end, or whoever it was in that draft instead of Patrick Mahomes because you can still get really good players. And it also matters who you draft. So number four, the Bears drafted, no, one, they drafted number six overall, and Dan Marino didn't go to number 27. So th- there's a difference there. He was also the fifth quarterback taken in that, or John Elway goes number one overall. Todd Blackledge goes number seven overall. Jim Kelly goes number 14 overall. Tony Eason goes number 15 overall. Ken O'Brien goes 24 overall. Then Dan Marino, number 27 overall. I will say, though, pretty incredible that you get uh, three Hall of Fame quarterbacks all within the first round, all in the first round of the same draft. That's a pretty special year. But guess who the Bears drafted? Number six, they selected Jimbo Covert, offensive tackle. By the way, Hall of Famer for the Bears. Played from 83 to 90. 1985, he was an all-pro first team that helped lead them to the Super Bowl. So it does matter who you draft. 
And the Bears t- selecting a Hall of Fame tackle with that pick is far and far less egregious in my head than selecting a quarterback at the same position as Patrick Mahomes, a future Hall of Famer and potentially greatest of all time, and missing on that pick. And then number five is simply, I think Patrick Mahomes is going to be way better than Dan Marino. I think he's going to shatter all of his records. I think he's going to to be in that next echelon with Joe Montana and Tom Brady for the greatest quarterbacks to ever live. And it's just the tier that Dan Marino's not in. So I think I think Mahomes is the better quarterback. And if you pass on the better quarterback, that makes it more egregious in my eyes. So I disagree with the notion that Marino was less egregious of a miss for those reasons. It feels pretty straightforward to me. Um, I, I really can't see the counter argument for this one outside of thinking the Bears had Walter Payton and a great core and Marino would have given them five Super Bowls or whatever you want to say. But um, even so, he went to a pretty good team in Miami, couldn't win there. So I believe it was less egregious and pretty firm on it. That's that. And our third one comes from Noah's Ark 2x2 on Twitter. He says, The Baseball Hall of Fame is completely worthless if it doesn't have Barry Bonds and Pete Rose. Yes. Yes, I agree. I mean, I don't really understand people that don't agree, but I think any Hall of Fame conversation, and especially with the Baseball Hall of Fame, it comes down to how you view the Hall of Fame. Do you view it as the highest honor in the history of baseball. And if you view it as the highest honor, it would make sense that you wouldn't want to give it to people who broke rules or cheated or did any of the things that Pete Rose and Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and and, and these types of guys do. If you view it as like a medal of honor from, from the military, right? It, it's this reward. It's like putting a kid on the honor roll who cheated in all of his classes. You can't do that. Not if that's how you view the Hall of Fame. I view the Hall of Fame as just that, the Hall of Fame. And while it is the greatest honor, it is an honor that is earned through success and through contributions to the game of baseball or football or basketball, whatever Hall of Fame you're talking about. But it is the story of the sport. It is the story of what has made the the sport famous, what has made these people famous, what will live in history books for the rest of time. And you can't tell the story of baseball without the greatest hits leader and the greatest home run, like the, the all-time hits leader and the all-time home run leader and one of the greatest pitchers many consider of all time aren't in the Hall of Fame. How That's not possible. You can't have something that you you tell as, as the tale of baseball and this great historic thing where things get enshrined because they may have made that much history and not put these guys you can put them in and say whatever you want you can say he cheated took steroids this guy got caught for betting as a manager whatever you want to say say it baseball hall of fame put it in there make sure people know their history but to omit Barry Bonds and Pete Rose from the Hall of Fame is a complete joke on everything that the Hall of Fame should be. 30 years from now, 40 years from now, a kid should be able to walk into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown and learn about Barry Bonds and Pete Rose and some of the greatest players to ever play the game. It shouldn't have to be a story that they hear from their dad or their grandfather. 
It shouldn't be this legend that is never talked about and, and, and this record that doesn't count and that like it shouldn't be these insignificant things because it has changed baseball. They did change baseball. They are baseball and baseball is them. So they have to be in and they have one more chance with Barry Bonds. They've probably already dropped the ball on Pete Rose too many times, as sad as it is, but they've got one more chance on Barry Bonds, one more chance on Roger Clemens to make up for all of this, if not for the Veterans Committee somewhere down the line. But they have to be in. Don't give them an induction if it, that, if it matters that much to you. Don't let them speak. But they need a plaque. Put their name on there. I agree. It's facts. And our final one comes from LJ Healthy on Twitter. He says, Monte Monte is the best best role player in college basketball, referring to um, Illinois guard DeMonte Williams, senior guard from Peoria, Illinois. And I don't really know. I don't really know if this is quantifiable at all, but he's certainly one of them. Certainly is one of them, if not the best. I think there's a lot that goes into it, but I mean, not, not the greatest score, but DeMonte Williams and Trent Frazier both, for, for you college basketball fans, the two of them are incredible off the bench for the Illini. They are a big reason why they're rated number five in the country, why they've had the amount of success they have in the Big Ten. Um, but for DeMonte Williams specifically, uh, he leads the entire country in three-point percentage right now. He's shooting 57.1% from three, um, not the largest sample size possible, but I mean, he's been leading essentially coast to coast in terms of the year. He, he led throughout the, at the start of the year, all the way to right now. And it's been a big jump for him. He's, he shot 22% his freshman year, 31%, 28%, now all the way up to 57. So the jump that DeMonte Williams has taken in his shooting and the way he has really refined his game in that way has been huge for Illinois and Illinois is one of the most exciting teams probably in the country. They're one of four or five teams that I can see winning it all. I think Io DeSunmu is the national player of the year, uh, despite what people are saying about Jalen Suggs or Luke Garza. I, I think Io DeSunmu is the most complete player. He's made the biggest impact for his team for sure. Uh, but these guys, these guys like Demonte Williams are the guys that end up winning you tournament games. You know, you can have a guy like Io DeSunmu. You can have a superstar player who can carry you there and can can carry the load, but you get late in these tournament games, somebody ends up hitting a big shot, somebody ends up stepping up that you don't expect, and it's usually one of these guys who uh, you you have to be able to rely on them. They call Io DeSunmu the closer in Champagne, um, fitting for what he's been able to do, putting games away just week after week, game after game, the way he finishes things, hits clutch shots at the end. But in the tournament, sometimes Io might not be able to hit that big shot or get that big shot up. They might be planning on Io taking that big shot, so someone's gonna, somebody else is going to have to step up. I think what Demonte Williams has done for them, uh, with five points a game, five rebounds a game, shooting as efficiently as he has, has uh, had a big impact on them. Him, Trent Frazier, Georgie Bijanashvili, all all of them. Being able to take the ball, know what they have to do with it as the veterans on the team that they are, and hit the big shots when they need them has really helped some of these young guys develop, has really taken a load off of Io Dasunmu's shoulders. Like I said, it's helped Adam Miller, Andre Curbelo. 
It's why the Illini are where they are right now, top five team in the country and a national title contender. So I don't know if I'd say he's the best, but he's certainly one of them. And you cannot talk enough about his impact and uh, it cannot be overlooked in any way. Okay, staying on the topic of Illinois, I want to do my gambling guarantees here to wrap things up. Um, I've been doing well still. Did two and three in show number two with some of my picks. I picked Loyola to beat Drake. Um, I remember that one for sure. That one definitely hit. And that when uh, Loyola, who's now ranked, upset the then-ranked Drake Bulldogs on the road. Um, But, yeah, uh, a couple picks. I'm going to go with three again. Uh, Just stay pretty basketball here as we go college and NBA, mainly college. But one NBA pick. Tuesday night uh, in Denver, I'm going to take Portland Trailblazers plus eight. Um, they are the better team at 18 and 11 nuggets at just 16 and 14 scuffling a little bit favored cause they're at home, but Damian Lillard's been on a heater recently, an absolute heater, not missing anything. Um, just balling out game after game, hitting game winning shots. So I like, I like Portland to stay in that one. I think if they lose it, it's a close couple point game. So Portland plus eight Tuesday night in Denver. Then I'm going to go to college. I'm going to, I'm looking at Wednesday and I'm looking at, a little SEC basketball action between Alabama and Arkansas. Number six, Alabama, and number 20, Arkansas. Alabama at 18 and five, Arkansas at 17 and five. And Arkansas on a little bit of a, a run as well. Um, they're slightly favored in the game, but I'm going to take the Arkansas money line uh, despite being the lower ranked team at home. Very difficult to win on the road in the SEC. We see that in a lot of these Power 5 good conferences. And I like Moses Moody, a very, very good freshman for them. Um, Just shoots the ball really well from inside the three-point line. And uh, good free-throw shooter, gets to the rack pretty easily, pretty small and shifty. I really like Moses Moody. What he's done his freshman campaign has been incredibly impressive. He's a big reason why Arkansas has gone on the run. They have one of the surprise teams in college basketball for sure. And they have not lost in the month of February yet. So I'm going to pick them to keep that up. Then I'm staying with Illinois, like I said um, earlier. And I'm going to Saturday college basketball. And it is Illinois number five against on the road against uh, number 23, Wisconsin. And Illinois favored just by a little bit. But I'm going to take Illinois money line in this one uh hammering this as a parlay so I, I'm, I'm betting on all these to happen here betting on this as a parlay um Dimitri trice the leading scorer for wisconsin i just don't think he's going to be able to fill it up guarded by uh frazier and Desunmu and those good defensive guards for illinois and uh who's really going to size up with kofi coburn you don't really know illinois has been on a heater as well as arkansas they've just been uh, nice little hot streak. They're riding a ton of momentum right now in a great spot, and they're hungry as well. They see that uh, Ohio State just lost to Michigan. They know they're a game or two away from potentially becoming the Big Ten regular season champion, and they know it. So Wisconsin's a good team, and Wisconsin's at home. Uh, again, teams win at home in the Big Ten, but I believe in Illinois. I really, really do believe in this Illinois team. They might be due for one more loss at some point in this year, but I don't think it happens to Wisconsin on Saturday, especially if they take care of business against uh, Nebraska and Michigan State this week and put themselves in a position to compete for the Big Ten title. 
I think that they are going to be there and right in the middle of things. So that's my gambling guarantees. I usually promise over 50% or majority correct. I was three of four week one, two of three in week two, and I've got three picks coming at you this week um, as we wind down uh, college basketball season in this little sports lull here. We're just hanging on, getting ready for baseball to start up and waiting for the NCAA tournament. But that's all I've got for you today. That is today's show. I appreciate you guys listening and tuning in once again. Um, it's been fun. Uh, again, trying to hang on here. Not a ton of sports to talk about, but we're always making the most of it. We're always trying to uh, just digest all of the stuff that's going on in sports. So if you have any thoughts on today's show, if you have anything you want to share, you want me to talk about in a future episode, please tweet me at Sam Phelan on Twitter or at AF Review Pod on Twitter as well. So follow the show, tweet at the show if you have any thoughts, and uh, we'll hopefully get back to it and take a look at it after further review.